0: Hello, everybody out there. Welcome to Omo. Thank you for joining us today. I've got Jerry Lynn here. Hi.
1: Hi, Rosie. How are you doing today?
0: I am better. Better? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. stressful
1: time of year, isn't it?
0: Back to school was crazy. And um, you know what, Jerry, I've had just a crazy, like the craziest months of my life.
1: I get that. You've got a lot going on.
0: It's a lot.
1: I'm sure you're going to be great.
0: You always say that, and I appreciate it.
1: (laughs) Oh, I mean it. So today, uh, we're fortunate to have Greg Sapp with us. And I met Greg, well, let me back. Yeah. Before I met Greg, I attended the the very first Oberlin Restoration reboot. And uh, one night at dinner, the director, Jeff Holmes, and Rodney Moore, and a couple other people all started talking about this guy named Greg Sapp.
0: Now... Let me interrupt. Yeah. When you say the reboot, um, where in time is that?
1: Uh, it's about 10 years ago at this point. Okay. So we're all at dinner eating and the subject of this guy named Greg Sapp comes up and the director, Jeff Holmes and Rod Moore and a few other people were kind of gushing about Greg. It's like, oh, that guy can do the impossible. Okay. And they, they just start going on. I was like, well, I've got to meet this guy. And the next year... Uh, Jeff Holmes persuaded Greg to come as a participant just to see the place and and hopefully have some sort of larger role within the organization as time went on. And I meet Greg and he reminds me a little bit about my grandfather. My grandfather was uh, a machinist and tool designer, and he's a kind of a soft-spoken guy with a, a wry sense of humor. And it turns out Greg is a keen amateur machinist and also has a very wry sense of humor And so I was kind of immediately drawn to Greg as a guy who, who really knew his stuff and was happy to share it. And when you're a, uh, interested in being a a good restorer of instruments, there's not a lot of role models out there. It's not like violin makers whom are, you can see their instrument in hand, 10 projects that, that Greg or anybody else has done could have gone past my bench and I would never know it.
0: Yeah, it's the the principle where when you're doing restoration, you leave as little sign of yourself as possible.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: You don't sign your name at the bottom because you restored something. Right.
1: At least you shouldn't, although I put Pablo was here all the time in my stuff when it doesn't quite turn out. <laughs> Anyhow, midweek, uh, one of our experts and dealers who, who shows up um, comes and... Uh, This expert is about to go give a lecture on bows, and he hands Greg a violin case, and everybody goes to the lecture, and Greg turns to me and says, hey, do you want to see this historically significant, easily recognizable instrument? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah.
0: Are we saying which one it is or are we not saying?
1: I'm not saying. I, I'm not comfortable okay. saying what it was. Okay. Anyway, so I follow.
0: But I know what it was and you know yeah, what it was. Gr- and, and Greg, Greg knows, knows what, what it, was. it
1: was. So so okay. anyway, we go, I follow Greg back to his bench and out comes this instrument and I watch him almost nonchalantly as he's talking to me, um, pulls out a different bridge and posts and tailpiece and strings and changes the setup up out on it and uh, is doing a little bit of minor touch up work and I'm just there in awe Mm -hmm. and he's there joking the whole time. And one of the things that really stuck in me in my head was he said, yeah, usually after I work on something like this, it's uh, usually a Skylark that I work on next. It's the universe's way of keeping me humble. (laughs) We got him to giggle. So everybody, uh, this is Greg Sapp. Welcome, (laughs) Greg.
2: Well guys, what a what a wonderful uh, introduction and, and wow, is that 10 years yeah. ago? And to find that I'm still working on Skylarks today. Who doesn't? Um <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's the bane of our existence, isn't that right?
0: Uh I didn't <laughs> clarify for those of you out here who maybe don't work on instruments every day. A Skylark, oh my gosh, how would we describe a Skylark? You know what? Are we not supposed to mention brand names? I'll take the chance on this one. They're
1: they're dumpster fires.
2: Okay. Exactly. (laughs) Right next to a Maverick, right?
0: From Jerry's mouth.
2: We may be dating ourselves with that.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, you guys. Yes. Greg and Jerry, you guys are both known for, uh, of course, you you guys have this uh, machinist quality to you you like building jigs
1: i got that from greg (laughs) that's right blame greg (laughs) (laughs) i saw uh my my grandfather and my dad building all kinds of jigs whether it's being a wood shop or a machine shop and i had never applied that to violins until i i met greg and it's like oh this is totally valid i can do this this is great so uh, i'd say greg is is more the machine guy than i am but i am definitely inspired by greg
2: it's just good to know that, you know, all of the uh, endeavors and hard work that one puts into their creative uh, uh, focus in life with regards to repair uh, is actually having a positive impact. Um, so uh, I appreciate your, your, your sharing that, Jerry. And I always have appreciated uh, sitting down, whether it's at Oberlin or at a VSA function, or just you know, yep. uh on Messenger, and uh, uh, and and sharing a few things that are going on because I know that uh, you have inspired me as well. Oh, thank you, thank you. So,
1: how did you get to be you? That's a very uh, Ooh. a big topic, but mm. I, I know that now you're scaring me. Now oh, you're scaring come me. on. I know you. You have a degree <laughs> in music education from Duquesne. Yeah. He then went to the, I believe at the time it was called the Kenneth Warren and Sons School of Violin Making, now the Chicago School. Do I got
2: that right? That is right. That is absolutely right. I had a, a music education degree. Uh, I was a string bass player. At that time, It was there were only a few schools um, available if one wanted to pursue violin making. There was this, the, the American School in Salt Lake City and the Kenneth Warren and Sons School in chicago the idea was presented to me that i look for some type of uh, apprenticeship program or some shop that might offer some basic training i looked around in i grew up in pittsburgh so i looked around locally there was a a well-known but near retiring um gentleman by the name of edmund Hertel, Mm. who in his day uh worked in new york uh and actually i found out was uh Uh, Back uh, in the day of Saccone, Hertel was the guy that most cellists went to to have work done on their cellos. So he was a noted um, uh, individual, and now he was in his 80s, and he had retired to Pittsburgh and had a shop there. And, uh, yeah, I brought in a, a, a little folk instrument that I had made as a result of some endeavors of my last year in college, and uh, he looked at it and said, oh, this is peasant work. Oh, ouch. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is, um, this is a, a craft beyond that. And, you know, you, you really need to, to find uh, a school to learn, learn that craft. So I moved to Chicago in the end of 78 and um, started my adventure into that realm of things. And um, you know that was a tough transition for me I mean every everybody goes through their their little phase of life but that one was a tough one for me that uh, you know my, my previous four years I had been on a full scholarship a performance scholarship and was traveling the country with this performance ensemble and just having a, a great time and now I'm you know in all the the funds for this effort in Chicago and it was just a radical change so um you know, it took a while to catch on, and uh, but I, I came out swinging finally, and uh, I worked with Chuho Lee at, at the school, um, and he challenged me a lot with the making, as well as repair work, and um, and it kind of just evolved from there. I was fortunate to to get his guidance. He actually had me doing some of his own personal repairs later on near the end of my uh, my tenure there. And one of the the jobs that he gave me actually kind of dovetailed real tightly with uh, the interest that I would later find and discover myself was he had a, a an interesting, it was kind of an old Italian instrument that um, the repair that was needed was that the head was broken off the peg box. Okay. And so I looked at him, I said, this is a tough one. <laughs> you know, there are no straight lines. There's nothing, there's no room for purchase to clamp safely and securely he said yeah that's going to be the problem and he says figure it out he says do whatever you need to do so i found a way to make a little device that would be an extension of the fingerboard that 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 extended out over the peg box in the scroll and to that were attached some adjustable beveled shape things to add some some um resistance and uh security to the peg box and then i made a counter form of the the volute and the profile of the scroll and before you know it i was able to um get this peg box back together and uh so he gave me permission just like you're saying i gave you permission jerry all those 10 years ago to you know create a jig or a device or some assistance Mm -hmm uh to help me achieve this and and the repair came out remarkably good for a person that you know uh i really knew nothing about repair i was just learning back then and um you know i think that was the first thing that you know helped my uh much needed palate to become wet did you find
1: that that challenge really sparked an interest oh yeah when you're making an instrument
2: it's a different it is a different um mindset mm-hmm. It's it's a bit different um, in that um, there is a puzzle now. Yeah. And in some cases, an unknown puzzle, you know, uh, a puzzle that you see all the pieces, but how are we going to get all this put back together? Yes. When you have a, a box full of traditional tools and you're weeding through this box of strap clamps and spool clamps and C clamps and this clamp and that clamp, and none of these things is going to do the job. Um, That's where, you know, my brain kind of starts considering other options.
0: Could both of you tell me some of the more common things that come across your desk that you have to build special apparatus for to do that repair?
1: Oh, for me, it's attaching a piece back on. Um, a lot of times when uh, an instrument gets dropped and a large chunk falls off, that chunk tends to, to, I'll say grow, but it's not really growing. It's the arch relaxing. The easiest way I have found to get it lined back up and the arch in the right place is to build a jig. So that's the most common thing that I'm using a jig for
2: Greg. How about you? That's a tough question because there are are unique scenarios much like that peg box that i had talked about
0: so are you more the person that people go to because they need a unique fix to a unique scenario
2: in some cases i would say that in other cases it's just by default it ends up at my workbench uh i really don't know how it might have gotten there there was this one cello that was actually at auction um and as it was being presented at auction, there was an accident and it, it was fallen on and the entire top had shattered. The cello was bought by my employer at the time, Jim Warren, and he brought it back from England. And when I took this cello home to fix it, I, the top was in so many pieces that it fit into a small uh, shipping box for a bow. Oh, The whole top. Oh, the no. whole top fit into that. <laughs> and and so, I mean, that's one kind of scenario where a specialized tool, a platform that I created to help facilitate in putting this Chilo top back together. When my wife and our customers are walking through our shop and she's introducing this customer for whatever reason to the guys in the shop, they get to the back room, the machine room. And she usually turns and says, oh, this is the playroom <laughs> and or, you know. <laughs> Greg, Greg sometimes is a guy that thinks outside of the box. So he needs extra equipment to get his work addressed. What I have to say to that usually is, yeah, I do end up thinking outside of the box. I think a lot of us in repair have to, but the thing that has to be noted and understood is that many of these thoughts, um, really start from dwelling quite a bit inside the box, you know? Assessing what our traditional methods are and are they applicable? Are they usable in in a situation like this? So for me, um, I'm real comfortable in the the setting of making a template, making a jig, making a device. Uh, In some instances, I will put together some, like for that cello, for instance, um, it probably took me uh, longer to put together the jig, this gluing platform than it did to actually glue back the top mm. to get it into one whole piece. Yeah. So, you know, there is, there is a, a, a point at which one has to say, is it really worth it? And, you know, for me, that's where the fun's at. Uh, and secondly, um, it facilitates getting the job done. It's kind of like, a, a strange sickness you might say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It really seems like you would have to have the vision to see the repair completed as you're building that jig.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You've got to see how every piece is going to come together, which I really respect because I have a tendency to just dive in and uh, realize I forgot five things later.
1: (laughs) Oh, so do I. One of the things that if you study uh, any sort of uh, machining practices with a, a lathe or a mill or a surface grinder... You learn very quickly that your order of operations is king, uh-huh. how you set up something and how you move through something. It makes all the difference in the world. And I found that for myself, when I started doing that sort of work, uh, building jigs, it all of a sudden made my, my restoration shops that much better because I had to think about what comes next.
0: Mm-hmm. You've preached that to me. Like you just, you make a list of the repairs that this instrument needs and you figure out what order they need to go into.
2: Yeah, absolutely. For sure that that is absolutely key, and, and I support your, your thinking in that one hundred percent. Whatever method one uh, might have to go to, it would be it could be their own individual approach, but those critical elements of being able to visualize—if uh, you could visualize in multiple layers, if you could visualize in um possibly 3d how is this going to look like when i when i when i close my eyes and i look at some of these obstacles that i'm looking at i'm i'm like revolving a you know the part in my head Mm -hmm. you know i couldn't do that to identify an instrument from a historical perspective but i can certainly do that um to to try to see which angle is best will be best served in, in trying to clamp or to create a clamp to work for that. A lot of that for me came from some of the uh, endeavors that uh, I, I learned working with uh, people in, in a traditional um, violin repair shop. So it should be understood that I'm not electing to use a power tool because I can't cut it with my hands. That's something that it
0: should be understood. Yes.
2: I think, you know, when people look at while somebody is electing to use a power tool oh, well, they just don't have the chops to do it by hand. And I think that's one of the fallacies that can be assumed that um, that I think creates an uphill battle for people like us, possibly. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Let's back it up a little bit. You've sure. touched on a subject that we didn't quite introduce, is um, when you say use a power tool, a lot of times we see people who work on both that will uh, – use a lathe or a mill to cut a very controlled slot into the head or into the frog. And we don't think anything of it, but the moment we see somebody with a plate mounted on a fixture underneath a mill, red flags go up all over the place and everybody starts crying, no, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and you're one of the f- the first people that I saw that did it in a way that was, not only was it extremely safe, but very controllable. And so I think that's kind of the elephant in the room right now that we kind of skirted <laughs> around and started talking yeah. about using power tools. Yeah. So let's, let's back up sure. a little bit. Sure. And uh, what are some of the things that you've done that have made people go, oh my God, you shouldn't do that. Well, yeah, that could be a whole other podcast.
2: <laughs> 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 well, we're not even talking to Mel either, you know, so it's. So- <laughs> No, she's 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 wise. She's not even around. She'd be laughing. You'd be hearing her laugh in the background. One of the things I want to know is who and where was the delegation of experts that agreed that the bandsaw and maybe a drill press were the only acceptable tools that might be considered usable in our trade. I mean, that's an interesting paradigm right there. Strad didn't use a bandsaw. Yeah. He certainly didn't have a drill press. From what I understand, the bandsaw was uh, invented in England in the early 1800s. So shops in those days might have collected a lot of things that needed cutting and then sent to the shop, unrelated to their shop, because this was new technology, and sent off to have a lot of mass cutting done for them. And the bandsaw really didn't take on its own until the mid-1800s when a woman, a French woman developed the what we understand as the modern welded blade uh, that gave more flexibility and more uh, dynamicism to how the tool works. So I want to know how that somehow was like the end of the flat world where the bandsaw uh, and the drill press stood at this precipice and then the world of the violin maker just dropped flat off from there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure why people really react the way they do. I think it's a very subjective thing. I think in some ways, maybe everybody reacts a little differently and for maybe different reasons.
0: Well, guys, let's talk about what specific things you guys are using. So I, I have a shop where I actually go down to Jay's to borrow his bandsaw. Like I don't have a lot of heavy power tools. So Tell me about your setup. What you guys are working with?
1: Oh boy! I'll start because mine's a much smaller collection. Okay. Besides bandsaw, I have uh, two lathes, um, a very tiny one and a much larger one, and I've got a a, a milling machine, an old school manual milling machine, and I have uh, the the new thing that I guess it's not all that new. My machine was made in 1999. Uh, is a Roland MDX20. Uh, desktop cnc router that will do an area of about 200 by 300 millimeters
0: this is the star of your instagram i would say
1: oh yeah
0: (laughs) i hope i can describe this correctly you have an exact piece that you need carved a certain way to fit a plate and the traditional way would be you chalk fit that thing for days However, with this machine, mm-hmm. you can get a really precise measurement and let that machine work all night long, and the next day you've got a precision piece.
1: Well, it's, it's more than just the machine. Okay. I'm using first a 3D scanner. Uh, I'm using a structured light scanner made by the, the now defunct David company that I'm using to take a picture or a series of pictures of the damaged area I am then creating a 3D model of the reverse image of the damaged area in a variety of programs, whether it be a CAD program or a 3D modeling program. I am then exporting it out from that into a a CAM program or computer-aided machining. And then that produces a file that my machine can then mill out. And um, dependent on the size of the object, it might take a few hours, it might take a day, to cut out uh the exact piece i need and at which point after it's, it's ready it will click fit into the damaged portion
0: just so cool
1: it's not necessarily faster than doing something by hand but it's far more conservative
2: i would add in a big way i mean there are alternative ways of pressing in soft tissue uh into those voids mm-hmm. but in to some degree in going through that process you're deforming the originality of the the, the areas that you're working at, uh, so you are in a way uh, changing um, what was what was originally there uh, when you scan or use a, a probe to gather that information and then create that in a computer software the inverted or image uh, mirror image of that, and then. With one of these machines that Jerry was describing, uh, create that part where it, it it just fills the void almost seamlessly, and it's it's one thing to fit a patch by hand and chalk fitted in a traditional sense that is uh, over an expanse uh, and has a very easily be easily seen surface, uh, but these are surfaces that look kind of like um, what, how could we say like like. You know, some out-of-world topographical maps. Exactly, a topographical map. Mm-hmm. Very oblique angles. Nothing makes sense in terms of. There's no symmetry. Everything is just randomly torn.
0: So pieces of wood chipped out yes. or worm damage. Yes, absolutely. It's just kind of a mystery as to where the holes are. Sometimes it is.
2: Well, if there's worm damage, uh, you... go ahead, Greg. No, you're you're you were fine going down the worm damage. I mean, that's a that's a whole
0: down the wormhole.
2: Yeah, there yeah, we so. go. Climb down that wormhole. Um, <laughs> I think we are climbing into a wormhole here, but um, that's okay. It's a conversation, I think. <laughs> it's much needed. Um, but these, these tools uh, are doing something that to attempt to do by hand um, would probably render more damage to the original instrument than we would want to have. Uh, Another scenario is a a traditional patch. Let's say one that might be used to reinforce, say, a broken button on a back. I've done one of those. There you go. Uh, So that you make this connection. You need to find a stable means to keep the instrument from...
0: Yeah, um, I just used Jerry's jig. It was awesome. Jerry's
2: jig. (laughs) Which was Greg's jig.
0: Oh, I used your jig. No,
2: it was Jerry's. He he bought and paid for it. No, we're cool. Um yeah. So but but that's the one part of it. Okay. So you get that part now. Um of the button being a very, very um difficult uh item to clamp back into place in a very controllable fashion.
0: Yeah. You've you've gotta take the violin almost completely apart and then excavate do de- like behind that button. And there's only a little bit of very delicate material to deal with. And you have got to have that space, that small space so supported. It's not going to budge. Uh, it's, it's pressing flat against something. So yeah, we totally used your system. We, we built a, uh, a, a Bondo form Cool and, uh, and, and mounted it to a platform and had that thing rigid. It did not budge. It was great.
2: Cool. And hopefully it worked successfully <laughs> and, and it proved to be a fine alternative for approaching that repair. This type of repair can be also used as an example for uh, why you might elect to use something like a CNC router. Okay. Or it doesn't even have to be a CNC router. It could be just template routing by means of using a template and a manually um, controlled machine but with much control by doing it this way the actual patch area can be far less invasive okay to create a patch bed deep enough for a traditional chalk fit patch the actual patch bed has to be expanded out farther beyond so that you have a a tapered Um, uh, transition into the undamaged area. Whereas there are ways to do this in a much more condensed format, um, having to take away less original wood and you still get equal to, I believe, uh, reinforcement for the repair of a button in that case. So there can be some benefits, I think. Tell us about your room of toys. Yeah. What do you have in there?
0: <laughs> Details, man. Details.
2: Well, I have a couple room rooms, room of toys are at our main shop. Cause I have two, two, uh, commercial shops where, uh, uh, one is in the city, downtown Chicago. It's a repair studio and I have, a, a, a your typical, you know, bandsaw. Uh, I don't have a drill press. I have a small mill drill which is a drill press with the additional of an XY table that is moved by a turn screw. And uh, I also have um, another machine there. It is basically a small horizontal milling machine, but it's been adapted to do trade-specific tasks for, uh, I have it set up to do uh, sanding, sanding like for a uh, sound post sander, so that uh, one can rough in a sound post quite quickly. And then, uh, depending on one's needs, you could finish fitting by hand, or in some cases, you could just let the sanding be the finished fit as well. That same machine converts into a small portable pin router, which is a tool that I would use with template routing. You know, here at our shop in, in Batavia, we get a lot more students needing attention to you know uh, student level instruments or even our rental level instruments Uh, but in the city where I'm talking about it's a whole different class of uh, musician and a different class of instruments that we're working on there but nonetheless I still use some of these devices that I've made to help rough in to get to that point where I can spend the majority of my time doing the minute details of finishing and fitting Um, the bridges or the soundposts, things of that nature. Another area where I might use a sander is where I will use template sanding and an oscillating spindle sander with an oscillating spindle sander to shape the the top arch of the bridge. So every bridge comes out with an appropriate curvature.
0: Okay, so you're talking about taking the bridge blank that is... um, several millimeters across at the top mm-hmm. and that the front has to be thinned a certain way. And you, you basically have a machine that will get you almost all the way there.
2: Uh you're close. What I would have at this point is a bridge totally fitted okay. and adjusted for how it is positioned on the top relative to the projection of the fingerboard. So I have. I'm thinking about how the bridge is placed in the center, of the geometric center of the instrument, and I'm looking to get that bridge also strongly correlated to the projection of the fingerboard. And so now I'm I'm projecting the string height, that curvature of the bridge. Got it. And so I will scribe that curve. I will trim it quickly on a bandsaw, and then uh, set the bridge into a device, laying it horizontal. And then I can adjust its position and then use an oscillating spindle sander that also has a, a, a guide bearing. The guide bearing rolls along the bottom of this device that's holding the bridge. And it's transferring the shape the guide bearing, which is the arc of the bridge. And it's sanding that very shape into the top of the bridge. That's so cool. So it's just one of those details that just adds a bit more control and the detail of accuracy and repeatability to my finished work. Mm-hmm. The main toy room is not in Chicago; it's it's in Batavia. It's a room that's about thirty by thirty feet in in, in dimension, and I have a couple bandsaws. I don't like changing blades. Oh man, who doesn't? So I have one set up for like resawing straight, straight cuts, and then another uh, set up for doing your scroll cutting, things of that nature. I don't have a traditional drill press.
0: That's so luxurious.
2: Uh, yeah, you know, and for me, my my machines and tools were like my first employees. Absolutely. So. I became a little bit attached to them probably eh, yeah that's another topic too anyway <laughs> um along alongside uh, the band saws we have um you know a, a large radial drill press and the 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 drill you know a normal drill press has a table that that moves up and down the column and you can adjust that and usually the 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 table is like Maybe 12 inches by 12 inches. And oftentimes it's just a circular cast iron piece that you could set your work on to drill. The drill press I have has a fixed base. It's about 24 by 36 and it has T slots, heavy cast iron T slots in it. So I could clamp just about anything I want to this drill press. And then the drill head moves up and down on a column, but it's also on a, on a ram. So I could move it in and out and, and move the drill press. To be able to be positioned anywhere in that area of 24 by 36. Wow. Around the circumference of that.
0: So let me see if I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, you have got the whatever material you're working with, and that is the piece that moves around on the drill press. If you're doing, for instance, graduations, you want to get the top plate a certain thickness. You've got to traditionally move that drill press around to get those certain depths. But you've got something where you can have that plate or whatever mounted steady and that doesn't move and you move the, the top of the drill press.
2: Yeah, if you're using that, you know, from a maker's perspective, if you're you're roughing in your, your, your graduation thicknesses, the outside shape of the top is finished. So that's an easy way to do that on a drill press. You could do that on a traditional drill press too. Uh, but I also have... Uh, an extension of my, my toy room is um, a, a copy router that I made. And so uh, I could put the, the top on this. It's basically like a pantograph. It's a swing arm, two parallel arms that swing back and forth. One arm has a stylus that will be guided over a shape, like maybe the shape of it inside of a violin. And then the other has a router head that cuts that same shape into the piece of wood, so I could rough in the shape of like what we would call rough arching almost finish in a very quick quick time so that I can spend all of my time doing the final thicknessing by hand in a traditional sense that
1: brings up an interesting question one of the the hot topic debate things that come up on on forums on the internet is. Uh, if someone's using technology to make an instrument, should you charge less for it? Is it equal to something that somebody is spending the entire amount of time doing something by hand with?
2: It's a great question. Mm-hmm. I think it is a very subjective question in that every application is different. Yes. It is dependent upon what it is the the strategy or the business model that the maker is employing for the instrument that they're making. My first reaction to that is why should I charge less? My tools cost more, like way more. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I don't know how many multiples of thousands of dollars I have invested in um, the equipment that I have. I mean, just the CNC equipment that I have. I have two CNC routers. One's a larger format, 36 by 50 working envelope. Uh, it's a gantry router, so that would mean it's like um, the, the bed is fixed where you would attach the workpiece is fixed, and then the cutting action moves about the parameter of, of the workpiece. The smaller one is the same format, uh, but between – and then I have a, a fairly large format two-axis um, CNC milling machine, so this is designed to, to mill – Aluminum or brass or steel or something, like jig making, the ultimate jig making tool. Yeah. That machine itself weighs about 2,400 pounds. Wow. Um, so between those three machines, to go out and buy, uh, I would have an easy thirty five or $40,000 just in those three machines. Um, But, you know, I'm a maker guy. So a lot of the things that I have are, are made in-house, uh, including the CNC routers.
0: You've got a rental fleet, so you're familiar with inexpensive factory instruments. Do you think that's part of why people m- make that assumption? They they see um, technology and they think factory made?
2: Well, sure. There are a lot of associations that we make Um I'm guilty of this hundreds of times in a, in a given day, (laughs) you know, uh, and sometimes, and sometimes wrongly applied, uh, because I don't take the time to understand or accept what's going on around me and why, you know, there are a lot of, uh, rental instruments that are made that are, um, older that probably were handmade, um, by a lot of, a lot of, Mm-hmm. lesser skilled individuals. There are a lot of rental level instruments out there that have been made in part by machinery and then hand finished. I mean, this is uh, you know uh, all part of the business strategy that one would endeavor. Uh, but I think what we have to do more than anything is to find a way to divorce ourselves from the thinking that Um, just because machines are involved that it equals commercial or poor quality work. I think that's uh, a whole different paradigm shift that we have to find a way to get to.
1: I think if you're really going for some sort of artistic endeavor, whether it be making an instrument or, or what have you. Uh, you're going to put an enormous amount of time, care, and thought into it, regardless of it's made with the help of a machine or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Versus if you're going to make something that's quick and fast, uh, that's an entirely different mindset. Absolutely. Both can involve machines. I wanted
2: to note, too, that both can involve handwork. Yes. And maybe even all handwork. Yes. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to, to overstep my, no,
1: look at all the, the, you
2: know, we've all seen videos
1: on YouTube of, of factories in, in China, where you have hundreds of people just cranking out stuff. Mm-hmm. And just because it's done by hand doesn't necessarily mean that it's great. Exactly. Exactly.
0: I got a, a spooky question. Do you think that it's because people associate an aliveness with their instruments. People think that there's like a, a soul infusion when you make an instrument. Whether they believe that is actually true or not, maybe that's part of um, the way that we look at instruments. And then to think that there is more of the hand of a machine takes some of that mystery out of it.
2: Ooh, well, I have similar thoughts about my car. I could agree with both. My car just died yesterday, so uh, I have to have it towed in to have it assessed by a computer. I definitely <laughs> I definitely agree completely with what you're saying, Rosie. Um, these musicians have this connectivity to their instruments. It is an extension of their soul. Mm-hmm. I recently finished a repair. In fact, I, I um, shared this repair at the recent Oberlin uh, workshop where a cello had been previously repaired totally by hand. And that repair left the instrument unusable. It had added in thickness to the top, almost three millimeters of an uneven raising of the top platform. Mm. And, And in so doing, finished the repair in a uh, way that it trespassed the originality of what little of the edge remained. This woman, who is a principal cellist of a major metropolitan ballet company, was not able to play her cello anymore. She completely felt like the instrument was stripped of its soul. She could not perform on it. So it was brought to me. And I used um, quite a bit of technology in following through on this repair. And I was able to restore it, which apparently was quite successful. She knew all along that I was going to have to create, actually, my large format CNC router just to facilitate doing her repair. She was aware of that. Not a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, when this woman flew up here to pick up the cello and she played on it, she was in tears. It was quite an emotional experience. Aww. And not one of those tears was shed because she felt that I violated or trespassed the uh, integrity of the instrument because it was touched by a, an automated machine. Uh, it was because she really felt that the, the soul had been restored.
0: Isn't that the best feeling?
2: It's a fantastic feeling. It was a great feeling. It was a great feeling. And I think that's why we're here as repairmen. In part, we're here to elevate the thinking of what we can do. Certainly, we want to strive to do things better every day. I think, you know, that's my goal. It will be a little bit better. But my ultimate goal is to be of service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the better I can present my customers... Uh, whether it's on a retail basis or on a wholesale basis, uh, with the best level of work that I can offer, uh, what better thing can I, um, you know, at the end of the day, if I fall short, at least I know I did my best. And I think that's really, um, what it seems to be all about. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Well, once again, Greg Sapp has been our guest today. Greg, if people want to know more about you, uh, you've got a website, GregorySappViolins.com. Did I get that right?
2: Uh, just Sapp Violins. It's plural. Sapp Violins. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Thanks, guys. You've been the greatest host. Thank you, Greg.
0: Thank you. Have a lovely day, guys.
2: Thanks. You too. you will take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Yo, yo, what up? It's
3: your boy, mom, Phillip, from Las Vegas, Nevada, and this is listener Feedback.
0: Hey guys, and I've got with me both Chris and Jerry.
1: Hey Rosie. Hey Rosie.
0: Hi guys. We did have somebody approach us about our thoughts on the master and apprentice relationship, but they ultimately backed away. Mm-hmm. I just want to reaffirm we don't want to be the last word on this if you've mm-hmm. got if your experience has given you different thoughts on the matter, we want to hear from you. I don't think we've got all the answers. We want to know what you think.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just call Antoine out. Uh, he called from the Chicago school and he was like, and now I have, I have to give you shit. Oh. <laughs> and it was because he was saying that um, Master Apprentice, my, my opinion was if, if you can find a way not to go to school, then you take a step past a lot of the, the basic rigmarole um, if you are already good enough to step past the basic rigmarole. And uh, Antoine's point was that um, you can't replicate the community of the strengths of your peers, which is possible at a making school. And that he feels like his experience at a school was much, much richer. Um, And he learned more broadly in ways that were unexpected because he got to sit between, uh, makers who who are, are really fine makers and influenced him.
0: That's an excellent point. Yeah, it's
1: a very good point. It's
3: a good point.
0: Okay, well, guys, the most common thing that we hear from people is more just a general remark. They'll say the imposter syndrome episode really hit home, oh, yeah. or the neurosis episode really hit home. We relate to that, and. For you guys, Chris and Jerry and me, we we started this, gosh, we started working on this about a year ago now. Feels
1: like forever.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) In a good way. So I just wanted to check in with you guys. Let's let's do a a mental health roundup. Let's see how we're doing.
3: What's our theme music for this? (laughs) Rawhide.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No need to understand them, they're rope-throwing random. Soon they'll be Lutheran far and wide. So, Jerry, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty good right now. Probably my low point was right after we started this. Yeah? I just took on... The project? Way too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we started Omo, Mm -hmm. uh, my my low point for the year was probably right after that. Not necessarily to do with Omo, but I was just taking on uh, way too much stuff. I was trying to be too accommodating.
3: You were starting a business.
1: I was starting a business, and I didn't necessarily understand that well i did understood that i'm only one person but i really didn't understand that i was only one person (laughs) and uh it took a while to realize that i needed to be much more careful with my time and much more careful with the projects that i said yes to and sometimes that sucks like i just said no to a, a a good friend with a a very fancy cello that he wanted me to work on but the time frame wouldn't have worked out and I've got all this other stuff to do. So learning to say no is something that I've been working on and it's really hard.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Are you working on your furry squirrel outfit for the convention? Is that why you're so busy? Oh, that's done. Yes. (laughs) I'm sorry that it, I sometimes, a lot of times when I joke, it comes out as if I'm diminishing others and I'm not, I just can't help it.
1: We know it's all good.
3: (laughs) So do you feel like you're handling it better now? You had to catch your stride and how to say no?
1: I am handling it better. Whether I'm handling it as good as I can be, I don't think so. It's always a learning process, it seems. And I am no different than anyone else as far as learning what my limits are and who I want to be. I can't be all things to
3: all people.
0: Oh, come on. (laughs) You got the voice.
3: You got the looks. Come on
0: you're in a different scenario than me and Chris mm-hmm. because you work mostly by yourself all day. Yeah. And, yeah. and not to say that you, you're you not a social guy because apparently everybody calls you for all the things they're working through. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> is, is that something that you do well? Do you thrive in that environment where you are sitting by yourself for long stretches?
1: I, I do and I don't. I think the hard part is... Uh, even though my shop is not located in my house i don 't leave the property where i 'm at, yeah, and so there 's a question of of self worth of getting up and leaving the house to go do something and even though i 'm commuting twenty steps behind my house, I still don 't feel as if i 've really left, so it 's not so much the the isolation as it is the psychological impact of just not going somewhere.
3: Oh, I get that, man. When, when my workshop was off our courtyard in Nebraska, I found that putting on comfortable dress shoes and a button-up shirt yeah, r- rather than putting on my Birkenstocks and an yep. Iron Maiden t-shirt yep. made me healthier to oh, go yeah. that 20 feet to work. <laughs> mm.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I've definitely had to learn that. Not necessarily the fancy dress shoes, but dressing like you're going to work even though you're working from home has been a huge boon.
3: And it's helpful when somebody from the Rotary Club drops by, too, and, uh, you know, my tattoos aren't yeah. out. That's, that's
1: yeah. Nice. <laughs> and just, just as much as people lean on me for advice, uh, there's people that I've come to lean on, too, like the, the low part of the day when it's like, gosh, I could really talk to somebody about this problem that I'm working on on the bench or a business matter. Um, I mean, I'm in contact with you two guys a lot, which has been huge. Mm-hmm. I'll call out some friends like um, like Matt Noikos. I, I lean on Matt a lot.
3: Noikos! Uh-huh. Represent!
1: Eliane LeBlanc, who's also a really great friend of mine. I lean on her a lot uh, as far as, hey, I'm working on this. Is my head in the right place? Yeah. Checking in with somebody else helps a lot.
0: Yeah. That's great.
1: Chris. Yes? Hmm. You have had a crazy crazy years since we started this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know
3: it's been a hundred years. I've been, I've been fighting to keep the, the beats, the, the milestones positive as everything changes. Um, And I worry sometimes that I keep things crazy, not just busy, but uh, dramatic in order to have an explanation for how I'm not handling things well. Mm because when things are smooth i still don't handle them super well so (laughs) so like i i feel like if i create um embroiled situations where i'm behind on everything then i'm justified uh it reminds me of a friend from high school would buy a pack of cigarettes and start smoking when he got a cough because it just wasn't fair if there wasn't a reason for the cough for him to be sick, <laughs> so he'd start smoking every time he like had trouble with his chest. Uh, <laughs> uh, do, do you guys do you guys work out? Do you exercise? Like, do you have a, a routine oh, for that?
0: I intend to. Yeah. I, I do have a routine of walking my dog, and when I am in a better place, I will do a little bit of yoga in the morning. That's just great. just to like keep those muscles loose. And and uh, I had to make that a priority for those long seasons, not just not just for my mental health, but because uh, I'm wearing out my, mm. my back mm-hmm. doing this stuff. And and I had to learn that uh, I've got to keep these uh, all these joints and muscles moving or I'm going to I'm going to be in a bad way. What about you guys?
1: I wish it did.
3: <laughs> yeah, I try. I try, but I, I, I'm definitely noticing that the folks that uh, seem like they're handling life at a workbench better all have like working out as a priority. And I know this, man. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I know this, but mm-hmm. I can't like I mm-hmm. can't seem to trade the time mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah. We're
1: all parents. And that also takes a toll yes. as well. Uh I mean, I'm the parent of a child who's not neurotypical, and that has a big toll on how I structure my day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Chris has yes, what you have ten children now? Chris, is that it? I have four. We <laughs> have four, four children. A hundred
0: children, and a ghost in the attic. Yes.
1: And Rosie has a kid who's a smart aleck enough for two children.
0: <laughs> she sure is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you compound all these things on top of being parents and also having spouses who are, are also very busy. Uh, it, it, it's tough to find time to be active, and I know I am super guilty of not doing that.
0: I don't think you've really dove in about if you've had uh, any, any darkness that you've needed to wade through.
3: Um, there's, there hasn't been anything but uh, sheer helplessness as things change. Uh And being frustrated at that. Yeah. You know, just really trying to keep uh, things moving along in projects and uh, recognizing that the longer I leave stuff I should have gotten done on the workbench, um, contacting long-term clients about restorations, which are lagging, Uh, the darker I get about the little day-to-day stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I've had a few things off my bench that were massive, longer than one year long restorations. Um, and each time it's it's been like a, an education for the stupid for me. It's, it's like when I sharpen my knife and I'm like, oh, carving a bridge is easy with a sharp knife. Like, yeah, you dumbass. <laughs> it's, the, it's the same thing with like the dark moments. Like mm-hmm. when I actually just make the time to buckle down and finish the thing, which is hanging over my head, which I made mistakes on, or I'm not handling my time well enough because there's a lot going on and I have a family, that suddenly there's pressure lifted off that I didn't know was there. Uh, I I delivered a a seven-string viol back to a wonderful lady named Anne Lazaridis. Um, And she handed it to me 15 months ago uh, in the ensemble she was playing in the upright base next to her fell on her vial and went through the top rib. And, uh, it's, it's just, it's been not a nightmare. I had all the pieces. She's brilliant and immediately taped Saran wrap over the hole. So all the pieces were inside the vial. Mm. Uh, but then I got in there and all the bracings had to come out and the back had to be rejoined and the blocks needed to be, uh, faced with new wood and, uh, I dropped it off this last week and I was like, oh, I didn't I didn't know that I hated myself until I (laughs) finished the thing that that it was making me hate me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I relate to that so much because our job is never ending projects, just sitting looking at us. Yeah. Judging us.
3: (laughs) And our self-worth is sitting there with them like Jiminy Cricket. But he's smoking a cigarette and he's got a leather jacket on.
0: (laughs) Are you going to rise to the occasion or are you going to fail at this when you get to it? Which (laughs) one's it going to be?
3: But the real test of Aluthia is what you do after you fail. (sighs) You go to the bar. Oh, good.
0: I'm going to be really good then.
3: Because you like going to the bar?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, guys, I'm just sitting here being really nervous because I'm about to have to talk about myself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. What about you?
0: I've had a exceptional year, a transformative year, a year where everything has happened all at once. And uh, things are moving faster at the shop than they've ever moved. And things are happening with Omo. And I feel connected to a lot of people that I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I had um, access to this community before this project. And so it's just been a treasure trove of gifts that have, left me freaking out. <laughs> i started seeing a life coach, guys.
1: Yay. Hey.
0: Ooh. Feels very privileged, but uh I will take it. Well it's a
3: positive experience. It doesn't matter what they call themselves. You know, you're seeing somebody that you can talk to, that's yeah priceless.
0: Yeah, just to pay someone to listen to me talk about me is really nice. <laughs>
3: It is
1: awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
0: I had to do a lot of introspection about what I want the future to look like, what What do I want this shop to look like. When I started this thing, it was in my house and it was a little quiet operation. And I did work by myself a lot and kind of liked it. And <laughs> over the years, this has turned into this full retail thing that I love and I'm proud of, but I've had to realize the introvert in me is not being serviced. I, um, my brain is slowly being addled and how do I make this place successful, but also how do I honor that time and, and get that focus back? So there's been a lot of uh, working on that and that's actually helped me a lot, (laughs) calm down quite a bit.
3: Right on. When you say addled, what do you mean? Uh, like it's, there's just too much going on, or
0: yeah the the distractions, the interruptions all day long, and then you get to the end of the day and you haven't really gotten to tackle the things that you want to tackle, uh, and uh, yeah. if I don't get the long stretches of quiet, then um, I'm just angry. I'm just, I'm not not a good, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a good spouse. I'm not a good mom. At the end of the day, uh, I I just want to check out. So, uh, making room for that time has been.
1: Yeah, you need time for you.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, for someone to ask you, well, what do you want the future to be like? Uh, first of all, that's a luxurious question to ask. But uh, I hadn't really checked in. Hadn't really like thought about. That other than just like saying yes to every cool opportunity that came along. So I'm, I'm right there with you, Jerry, learning what I can make time for and what I need to say no to.
3: Wasn't that a Jim Carrey movie where he said yes to everything?
1: I think so.
0: Sure. Good. good.
3: Sorry. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> a mentor of mine always keeps telling me to pick my battles. And he's so incredibly right. I mean, it's a luxury, too, to be able to say, no, I don't want to take on that job.
0: That just made me think of this uh, thing that our friend Maya posted recently that said, pick your battles. No, that's too many battles. Put some battles back. Exactly. And uh, that meant a lot to me. Yes.
1: yes.
3: Pick yes. smaller battles. Yeah.
1: Uh, I, too, had a a lovely conversation with somebody from the Chicago school, Kristen Ballinger. hmm she wanted to recommend another podcast for all of us. It's called Finding Mastery with Michael Gervais, oh. and basically, what it is is an entire podcast of people who have some form of imposter syndrome.
2: Okay, Yay. so uh,
1: I listened to a couple episodes. It it kind of made me feel good about myself. Uh, there's all these successful people that also are going through similar things that we all are.
0: Yeah. Cool. I do want to say one more thing. One thing that has kept me centered this year is I just have fallen in love with this community. I didn't I didn't know a lot of these people a year ago, and I keep meeting one person after another. They're so nice. They're so cool. They're so interesting. Um, everybody's got great stories and is a deep thinker, and I am just blown away by the talent and the graciousness of the people in this field. Um, Just the other day I was having problems getting a really good clean cut on a bridge. So I just posted something about that on Instagram and there's immediately 20 people that are sending me pictures of how they carve their knife and they make the back curved or, or sending me a video of of the motion of their hand or um, other recommendations and uh, it's really lovely to to be in the middle of all, all of that. So I'm I'm truly appreciative appreciative of of all you guys out there.
3: Yeah, I think sometimes, like, it, if I was in another discipline, would everybody be just as great? Like, is this just human nature? And I I really think that uh, it's not, and that the sort of person that gets into the, the jazz of making things with your hands and, and becomes expert at it um, is a special type of fool.
0: <laughs> I enjoy
3: those fools. Yeah, me too.
0: This is, 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 this is and
3: this is Dakota. Dakota.
0: Guys, uh, I've noticed that there is a certain love affair with uh, different types of tone wood. And- I've been really trying, baby. On. Yeah. You know, it just makes me think. Um, Hold back this tone wood for so long. Yeah, that the luthiers are just really trying to not catcall trees.
3: And if you feel <laughs> like I feel mama. Chris doesn't
1: try to not. He just does it.
0: He just goes for it.
1: He just goes for it.
3: Oh, yeah. Like it used to be like I'd drive around and and... Seeing members of the opposite sex would be what would be dangerous for my driving, and now it's like willows <laughs> and poplar. I'm like almost crashed because I'm like, oh man, look at the medullary ray on that son of a bitch!
0: <laughs> so, yeah, if you guys were gonna catcall some trees, uh, what's a, What's some lines you'd come up with?
1: Hey there, Maple, <laughs> you'd look great as sawdust on my apron.
3: I like my poplar like a like my coffee all over my lap in the car.
1: Okay, we just lost sponsors.
3: Yeah. No, no. Yeah. But I think that the most important thing we do here is this is how you cat call anything. <laughs> you cross the street and you yell, I respect you! Yeah. And I know you are doing things that have nothing to do with my
0: wish <laughs> to open you up to okay. the tree. Oh, god, I'm cutting that. <laughs> no, that's the good stuff. Hey, hey, Maple. Hey, did it hurt? Did it hurt when you fell from heaven? Oh. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, hey, hey, Willow, did it hurt? Did it hurt? Because it looks like you hit every ugly branch on the way down. Oh. Oh. That's rough.
1: Ouch. Yeah. Ouch.
0: I'd like to ream you, Mr. Tree. <laughs> Guys, um, I'd really like to tap that tone.
1: Oh. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. I think we should probably stop there because uh, that's about as good as it's going to get. So.
0: Well, I, I just want to say one more thing. Your quilting could keep me warm all night long. Oh,
1: that's sweet. Thank you for listening to Omo. Omo is produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. Music is by Invoke Sound. This episode is edited by Jason Peoples. Like the show? You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Omo Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us with your thoughts, questions, or ideas at. Mail at
3: omopod.com.